Hey everybody and welcome to the New York Mystery Machine. Tamney Hall, but for ghosts. Hey Christina, Hi. how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing just peachy. Just peachy, we were just talking about peaches. We were talking about peaches. Peaches are real good. Whilst eating apples. Yeah, wishing it were a peach maybe. Yeah, I probably won't. I probably won't eat apples during the show this week, unlike a few weeks back where I was notably eating an apple. I may eat an apple during the show this week, even I though can't I'm wait. the one talking. And then we'll just release all of our ASMR sounds, yeah. like us eating apples, on our new Patreon. Our Patreon. Wait, Tell you, us more, Adam. You can get to our Patreon by heading on to Patreon.com/slash NY Mystery Machine, and then because of that, I'll be able to start saying. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you by listeners like you. Mm, For just a few dollars a month, you can support the New York Mystery Machine by heading over to patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and selecting a tier in which you can donate between 3 and $25 a month for wonderful prizes and perks. Mm. Check it out now. Well, that was a good commercial. That was a great commercial, Adam. I should just do live voiceover. Um, and what, what, uh, where does the money go to, Adam? Does it line our pockets? <laughs> if only. No, um, we need some new equipment, folks. Um, I've been using this equipment for a few years now, and it is not great. Mm. Some of these dials are are a little falling off, and <laughs> I literally, I said, I said this. I'm not sure when this podcast comes out, but I said this before. I'll say it again. Mm. I'm going to take a picture of my headphones and you'll see the fact that they're being held together by two pieces of electrical tape. It's very stylish, though. I didn't actually realize that it was electrical tape. I, I thought it was a stripe at first. I was <laughs> like, oh, so. look at those. I was like, I'm not going to put like crap. I'm going to put like some nice tape on there so people don't realize <laughs> how. But literally, they're 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 falling apart. And so uh, I would like to get some new headsets for, for, for the team, um, some new microphones. These microphones are really not the best. On their last leg. And they're on the last leg. So... If you donate to, to, to the show via Patreon for just a few dollars a month, um, you can help uh, help us achieve some dreams and yeah. make some make some magic happen. So thanks for doing that. And thanks for everyone who has liked, subscribed, uh, rated, and reviewed on the iTunes. We appreciate all your kind words. Uh, and yeah, keep that uh, keep it up. Keep it up. Yeah. Where, where are we today? Today, we will be in New York City a lot all and right. also not at all. Um, so just, you know, it's going to be taking us a lot of places. Um, it's a wild case. It reads like a spy novel. Um, and in fact, I, when reading a book about this, I kept checking to make sure that I wasn't accidentally reading like fiction, <laughs> like a novelization of this. Like, oh crap, this is all not it's, true. It's, it's so weird. Um, and it's a disturbing story. I'll flag that from the beginning. It involves acknowledging, uh, some, some real shit. The United States did in the name of intelligence, um, and like I said, it'll, it's, we're going to be in New York. We're going to be going across the country, and we'll end up across the world. And this is the story of the death of Frank Olson. Um, and I'll say too, one of the reasons I was really excited to do this is in part because we just did a couple weeks ago the case of Richard Colvin Cox, the West Point cadet who disappeared. And this is sort of around the same time frame. So Cox. There are theories that he was recruited by the CIA and goes to Europe and did some stuff that maybe borderline is illegal. And this is around the same time. Um, Cox disappears in 1950. The main event that precipitates everything in the story, as we understand it, is in 53. So it sort of builds out that world that uh, we began talking about a couple weeks ago. I love it. 
Um, I'll say, too, that there are, uh, you know, a six-part documentary and a 1,600-page book on this. We don't got that time. So we're going to talk about Frank Olson and who he is, uh, some of the projects that he was working on that involved the CIA, uh, the official story of what happened, and then some of the reinvestigations. I love it. So Frank Olson was born July 17th, 1910 in Hurley, Wisconsin, to Swedish immigrant parents. He was the youngest of three kids. Uh, he enrolled in the University of Wisconsin in 27 and decided to become a chemist. He graduates in 31. In 33, he becomes a second lieutenant in the Reserve Officers Corps, which is important. And in 34, he decides to enroll in a PhD program for chemistry. In 1940, Frank marries a woman named Alice. In 1942, Olson's former thesis advisor, Ira Baldwin, gets Olson a job working for the Army's Chemical Warfare Service in Maryland. And this is where Olson works under a Columbia-trained physician and psychiatrist who is researching, quote, a classified project involving chemotherapeutic aerosols. Previously, this doctor had been doing allergy research at Columbia University and Mount Sinai, right here in New York City. Um, and the doctor's name is Alexander Abramson, and hold on to that name. So together, Olson and Abramson travel to Mitchell Field, Long Island, to conduct experiments. They meet with uh, some uh, service officials in New York City. Um, they meet specifically with OSS officials, which is the CIA forerunner, and at the time was really interested in the idea of truth drugs. We'll talk more about that. Sometime later, the U.S. Biological Warfare Center, where Olson works, gets moved to Dietrich, Maryland. Uh, and that is where he will do a lot of his work. <laughs> oh, gosh. We, we, we've we moved our studio around a little bit, so we're in a makeshift studio this week, yeah. which will eventually be our, our full-time studio, but it's not equipped as well as the old setup. So as you all know, Christina comes with 1,500 pages so there's no really place to put her her pages. Maybe a binder one day. Nah. Um, she just puts she's putting them on the floor. <laughs> so this, every time she's done, she's like. Shh. I was a lot more elegant than that, Adam. Yes. <laughs> anyway, January 1950, Olson gets recruited to the Special Operations Division at Dietrich Field, and uh, and in April of 1951. The Special Operations Division, or SOD, and the CIA would have quarterly retreats together to discuss progress and future plans. And this is also important to know, I promise. Ultimately, Olson is the aerosol specialist. And so he's the perfect person to start working on chemical warfare agents and toxic agents that can be disseminated in a cloud over large populated areas. That was of interest to the CIA. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the CIA. What are they doing with all this nonsense? What do you know about the CIA in the 50s, if anything, Adam? I mean, I, not, nothing like confirmed. I mean, I just, uh, it's an organization that's mm -hmm. founded for intelligence, mm -hmm. obviously, purposes. And um, that's really all that's I fair. know. That's I fair. Mean, that's... Like, what's, what's there to really know about the CIA except for the fact that they do a lot of like below border shit, you yeah, know? Yeah, some real, real shady stuff goes on there. Yeah. So the CIA is established with the National Security Act of 1947, and prior to this, intelligence was collected by numerous bodies, and the CIA is sort of set up to be like this coordinating hub. We, you would say it's a central... You might say it's a <laughs> central intelligence agency, as it happens. Um, 
And in the 50s, the CIA is interested in some very odd pursuits, one might think. Um, so, for example, uh, there were some Looney Tunes-esque attempts on Fidel Castro's life. For example, no joke, there was a poisoned pen. And in the 60s, they tried an exploding cigar. Like, it's it's Looney Tunes-esque. Like, literally, like like what they gave to, like... Um... Uh, the, the the old western guy in yeah. Lean Tune. Uh, uh, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> He's blows up in space. Exactly what they wanted to do. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't surprise me that the United States of America gets their ideas from Lean Tunes. It does not surprise me. <laughs> that feels right. <laughs> and not the opposite of way around. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> um but beyond that the CIA was interested in researching parapsychology, mind control, things that could be used as weapons without necessarily shedding blood. And to do this, the CIA conducted clandestine experiments on unknowing, uninformed, non-consenting civilians in the United States and in Canada. So for today, there are two primary projects that we'll want to keep in mind. One is Project Bluebird, and one is MKUltra. So Bluebird began in 1950. In its first year or so, Bluebird meetings were held in Montreal, as well as right here in New York City. As part of it, the CIA experimented with the use of drugs such as opium, heroin, mescaline, and LSD. And the idea was that they could identify a drug or combination of them that could act like a truth serum. Uh, or in the words of an early planning session attendee, quote, make the subject sing like birds, hence the name. Hmm. Only three dozen documents from the project remain. The CIA purged the rest. But here are two descriptions of that project from those existing documents. Bluebird teams are to include persons qualified in medicine, hypnosis, psychological interrogation, the use of, I can do this, electroencephalograph, yes. electric shock, and the polygraph. And the other quote is, can a person under hypnosis be forced to commit murder? So this is the kind of stuff they're interested in. This is like some Manchurian candidate shit. Yes, it is. That's yes, it is. Yes, it is. The other major project that we'll be returning to a bunch um, is MKUltra. Now, in the early days of the Cold War, it's rumored that the Soviets had a way to control minds, and MKUltra is designed to counteract that by finding a drug of our own to do the same. Sure. So this program ran in the 50s and 60s, and it's the brainchild of a chemist by the name of Sidney Gottlieb. Now, Gottlieb's work was conducted quietly at some universities and research centers, uh, but others were done in U.S. prisons and detention centers in Japan, Germany, and the Philippines. And again, like Bluebird, involves psychological torture, electric shock, and high doses of LSD. Mm. The idea was to remove the individual's existing mind through electroshock and then somehow create a new mind within them. And there are definitely deaths that resulted from this, and we don't know how many. And there's this NPR article that I'm going to quote here because it's important to mention that, quote, essentially this was a continuation of work that began in Japanese and Nazi concentration camps. Not only was it roughly based on those experiments, but the CIA actually hired the torturers who had worked in Japan and in Nazi concentration camps to come and explain what they had found out so that we, the United States, could build on their research. And indeed, Nazi doctors even went to Fort Detrick, Maryland, where Frank Olson works, to teach CIA officers. So if you weren't sure yet how you felt about America, pretty pretty shitty. Pretty yeah, shitty is the, that's the baseline here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to know, too, that nobody's monitoring Gottlieb as he's doing this work. Very little to no oversight. Um, and 
when the CIA director, Richard Helms, is removed by President Nixon in 73, Gottlieb destroys whole boxes of MKUltra records. So the only records that really survive are ones that were essentially misfiled or were like from a finance memo that got put somewhere else. And it's from this that we can reconstruct any of what's going on. Nuts. But this is the world that Frank Goldson is adjacent to, if not downright a part of. And as far as his family can tell, it's a good job. He's doing well. He's doing work for his country. He's a patriotic American. He's not happy when the lab animals die, but you know, who is? Who is? And there was a lot that they knew he couldn't tell them about his work, but they were aware that it was a fairly dangerous job being a chemist, but all in all, pretty stable family guy, right? Now, like I mentioned, part of the job involves going on regular multi-day retreats with the Army research guys and the CIA guys to talk about their project. So Frank Olson goes on one of these trips on November 19th, 1953. It's a three-day retreat at Deep Creek Lodge, Maryland. It's a house with one big old room and, I guess, a couple of bedrooms. And when Frank comes home from this, his wife Alice notices that he is extremely anxious and really sad. And Alice asks, what's wrong? And Frank's only response is, quote, I've made a terrible mistake. I've made an awful mistake. Oh, no. And he decides that when he goes to work on Monday, he's going to talk to his boss, Vin Rouette, and resign. Monday morning rolls around, he goes to work, he calls the house a little bit later, and he says, nope, it's fine, turns out I didn't make a mistake. Alice is real relieved. He goes in on Tuesday, but ends up returning home before noon with a Dr. Joseph Stubbs, and Frank said that he agreed to go into psychiatric care, and that Stubbs wanted to follow him home because he was afraid that Frank might do, quote, bodily harm, unquote, to Alice. So they say that they're going to take him to Washington, D.C., and Alice is like, I'm coming, this is weird. And so they all pile into a car and they head for D.C. They stop for lunch and Frank apparently refuses to eat his food, saying that it was poisoned. He says, you don't understand. They can put anything they want in my food. But he wouldn't explain further. They get to D.C. and they say, actually, this ain't our final stop. We're going to take him to New York. And they make Alice leave Frank. And they say that he needs to go to the psychiatrist in New York because he had the right clearance with the government to hear whatever it was that Frank needed to say without Frank being worried about disclosing things he's not supposed to. So essentially, they want, there's like two psychiatrists in the country that have the right clearance level for Frank Olson to talk openly to, and this happens to be the guy that's available. Frank promises he'd be home for Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving, Rouette calls and says that Frank was on the way home when he became so worried that he would do something inappropriate in front of the children that he returned to New York for additional treatment. Alice spoke to him a few days later, and he seemed in good spirits, and he was looking forward to coming home. That was the night of November 27th, 1953. So now we're going to be in the real early hours of the morning on November 28th, 1953. We're at the Statler Hotel in New York. So the Statler Hotel today is known as the Hotel Pennsylvania. It's located at 401 7th Avenue, right across the street from Penn Station. It's 2.30 a.m., Oh yeah, that hotel is really and it still exists. Yeah, you can go see it. It's isn't it's is it the like now the Wyndham or like right next to the Wyndham, right? I heard it's in disarray and it's it being it's been like not to cut your story off. No, go for but it. But there's a whole big thing about it. I was listening to to um the Bowery Boys podcast mm. and they were talking that there's a whole there's a whole movement to keep it to keep it preserved because um it's in it, they're saying that over the last years they're looking to to sell it and destroy really? it. Really? Yeah. We gotta stop tearing shit down. Yeah, it wasn't really maintained, so mm. the, the historical value of it's not really there anymore. Anyway. Interesting, but yeah, it's this beautiful old hotel that you know 
was built in the I think the late 19 teens um it undergoes a few name changes um and in fact it might be is this still known as the Hotel Pennsylvania yeah yeah it is okay because it went back and forth like 20 times um but yeah it's 2 30 a.m at the time the Statler Hotel and there is this horrible sound of glass smashing and something heavy hitting pavement the doorman of the hotel runs to get the night manager, a man named Armando Diaz Pershing Foc Pastore, which is one great name, and says that someone jumped from a window. Oh. Pastore goes out front to see and kneels next to the man on the sidewalk. Oh, no. The man tries to speak to him, but he is too badly injured to do so. Pastore comforts him, says help is on the way, he's going to be okay, calls for a priest. The man continues to try to speak, and then he died. When the police arrived, they ask what room he jumped from. So Pastore goes outside to see if he can figure it out. There are 2,200 rooms in this hotel. Yeah, it's ginormous. It's big. And eventually he spots an open window and realizes it's room 1018A. Two men had registered for that room, a Robert Lashbrook and a Frank R. Olson. They had checked in about 10 hours prior on the 27th. And when Pastore and the police went up to the room, they found the one remaining man sitting on the commode holding his head in his hands. And when asked what happened, the man only said that he woke up because of the sound and wasn't sure what happened. Sure enough, the window was smashed to bits. There's only a couple of shards left and none under the radiator where there was a radiator under the windowsill right next to it. The man in the room, turns out this was Lashbrook and the man who fell from the window, Frank Olson. When Pastore goes back downstairs, he asks the hotel operator if any calls were made from 10.18a after 2am, right? Because... Theoretically, your roommate just plummeted to his yeah. death. Apparently, there was just one maid, and it was to a Dr. Abramson at South Oaks Hospital, Long Island. You'll remember Dr. Abramson because he was the, uh, the trained physician from Columbia University Mount Sinai Hospital who was researching, you know, chemotherapeutic aerosols. Oh, yeah. This guy is an allergist and this is this is now the guy that's getting called right okay apparently the operator who placed the call because remember this is the day when you had an operator yeah, and, yeah yeah and apparently you know you stay on the line to make sure the person connects so what she heard she was on the line just long enough to hear a bit of the conversation the doctor answers and the man at the hotel says well he's gone and the doctor said well that's too bad and they hung up Okay. So just enough for that operator to hear everything because it's call so short. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very short call. That's the only call. So what we have to like keep in mind is like Lashbrook didn't go, oh my God, what just happened and call the police. He didn't go downstairs at all. He doesn't go see if Olsen's okay. He goes and sits on the toilet with his head in his hands after he calls Dr. Abramson and says, well, oh, I should... I should back up and say we presume Lashbrook yeah. is the one who did this. Yeah, I was like, there's no there's no evidence supporting that it is. Right. It's just a voice, a voice on the other end. That so. we're assuming the other human being is. Right. And Lashbrook, you know, has to give a statement to the police. Um, and he says, you know, he woke up to the sound of the crashing glass looked out the window, saw Olsen on the ground, saw that people were beginning to congregate around him, figured the police would want to speak to him and that there was nothing he could do. And so he stayed in his room. This is, this is where uh, some of the story gets to get a little, little funny. 
Um, because according to Alice, Olsen's wife, Lashbrook told her that he woke up and saw Olsen, quote, going at a full run towards the hotel window and then go through both the closed window and the drawn shade. So this... They... Go through the window? That, you, we would have known that. There would have been broken glass. Well, there was gl- broken glass. Some of it maybe down on the floor below, but like... But for a human being to go through a window, that's not some broken glass. Right. That's a shattered... To, for, to be able to get through the window, that's a shattered window pane. Right. Right. Absolutely. And also, what you have to imagine then is that, that Olsen is taking a running start to catapult himself through the window. It's all very odd. But also just the fact that Lashbrook tells the police, I don't know what happened. I woke up and there was a sound. and I Versus what he said, I woke up and saw my roommate running into the window. Like, those are two different stories. Very different stories. Like, seeing someone commit suicide and then having seeing the aftermath of it are two different two different things but regardless that's the official story and this is all the family has to go on so they bury frank he's not given a complete autopsy everyone figures it's pretty obvious how he died um it's always give a complete autopsy. Always give a complete like autopsy. regardless if you think if you're very certain that it's suicide probably should do an autopsy certainly because you can also like see if there are any chemicals in his body i fear i'm, I'm jumping I'm jumping in this story. I, I like the way your brain thinks. <laughs> um, it was also recommended that they do a closed casket funeral because of how badly disfigured Frank's body was. So they never get to see him. A few days later, Frank's colleagues, who are rumored to be CIA, spoiler, they are, come to give their condolences to the family. And this is Lashbrook himself and Sidney Gottlieb. Okay. You'll remember Sidney Gottlieb as the MK Ultra guy. So over the next two decades... The family holds this grief, right? Alice ends up suffering from alcoholism. She comes out the other side sober again, but it's it's a really rough period. Her kids grow up, and then something happens in the early 1970s that set alarm bells off for Alice and her family. So it's important to remember, as we already established, that the CIA has had very little oversight from the government since its inception until the 1970s. And the 1970s is when that changes, and it's no small part because of the Watergate scandal and because of other reporters that were no longer interested in being sort of the propaganda arm for the government. Instead, is they're really interested in doing the investigative, you know, expose journalism, right? In 1975, at the suggestion of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, yes, that Dick Cheney and Donald, D- Donald oh, Rumsfeld, President Gerald Ford issues an executive order that created the Commission on CIA Activities within the United States. And this was meant to you know, figure out if there were any, quote, facts relating to activities conducted within the United States by the Central Intelligence Agency that give rise to questions as to whether the agency has exceeded its statutory authority, unquote. So this quickly becomes known as the Rockefeller Commission, and it was filled with people who had connections to the intelligence community. So like not exactly the most unbiased of uh, participants. Regardless, it's through the Rockefeller Commission that we really get to have the the exposure of programs like Project Bluebird, its spiritual cousin that we didn't mention yet, but Artichoke and MKUltra. So here's a quote from the commission, this Rockefeller Commission. Would you kindly read this, Adam? Oh, you'll want the second page, actually. It goes over. Oh, boy. It's down at the bottom. <clears throat> On one occasion, during the early phases of the program in 1953, 
LSD was administered to an employee of the Department of the Army without his knowledge while he was attending a meeting with CIA personnel working on the drug project. Prior to receiving the LSD, the subject had participated in discussions where the testing of such substances on unsuspecting subjects was agreed to in principle. However, this individual was not made aware that he has been given LSD until about 20 minutes after it had been administered. He developed serious side effects and was sent to New York with a CIA escort for psychiatric treatment. Several days after, he jumped from the 10th floor window of his room and died as a result. Thank you, Adam. So uh, who does that sound like? Uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, Mr. Olson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't mention him by name. Clearly, but and it's very much that. It's very clearly that, right? And so on June 11th, 1975, the Olson family sees this incident referenced in a newspaper report about the commission. And again, no mention of Frank Olson's name, but the family is like, whoa, these are this is him. These are the circumstances. So the family files a lawsuit very quickly, which, among other things, uh, requested as part of it, the complete disclosure of any files related to Frank's death held by the government. Meanwhile, this is getting a lot of coverage, right? So the White House invites the Olson family to meet with President Ford. They meet in the Oval Office on July 21st, and President Ford extends his deep sympathy on behalf of the American people. And against the advice of his staff, he ends up ordering the then CIA director, William Colby, to release files on the, related to this matter. And these become known as the Colby documents or the Colby files or the Colby papers. But it becomes almost immediately clear as they receive these that these are not the only documents or the full file on the case. And it becomes clear that the Justice Department has others as well. These documents also never explained whether the application of LSD was voluntary or involuntary. And there was nothing to discuss the purpose of this experiment nor why there was no medical personnel to observe the drug individuals at Deep Creek. Also, Dr. Abramson, again, an allergist. Why is he the one giving Mm. psychiatric treatment? That's weird. So the list goes on and on. Nonetheless, a settlement was eventually reached for a sum of money for the family. And as a part of the settlement, it means that it's very easy for subsequent lawsuits to be blocked. Sure. And that's sort of where the story ends for a while until the 1990s oh that's a huge break it's a huge break which would be a great time to take a break that's what you did there mm-hmm. all right we'll see you guys in a second So you listen to our podcast, which means you must love mysteries. But how would you like to solve your very own mystery? Hunt a Killer is an immersive murder mystery game told over the course of six episode boxes. Each box is filled with different clues and physical items such as autopsy reports, witness statements, and more. You'll use these clues to solve an ongoing murder mystery. Work solo or as a team of sleuths to finally crack the case and reveal the murderer. So do you think you have what it takes to hunt a killer? If so, head to www.huntakiller.com and use the code NYMYSTERYMACHINE for 20% off the first box. That's www.huntakiller.com and the code is NYMYSTERYMACHINE. Sign up now and begin the hunt. Bow, bow, bow. 
We're in the 90s. It's June 2nd, 1994, and Eric and Nils Olsen, Frank's sons, and by this time the only surviving members of his family, his immediate family, they have Frank Olsen's body exhumed for a proper autopsy. James E. Stars, who is a professor of law and forensic science at George Washington University, was asked to weigh in and coordinate the medical efforts. He contacts the Manhattan Medical Examiner for their report from 1953, and he finds that it is only two pages long because the original medical examiner, Dominic DeMaio, only conducted an external investigation. So he uh, asks for a forensic toxicologist to do a toxicology report. Interestingly, there is no LSD that is found in his body, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't LSD in the system at the time. So you normally test for LSD with urine or blood samples, which at the point of this wasn't really feasible. So it could have just been that the dosage was low enough to not remain in other tissues. The investigation also showed that Frank likely landed on his feet based on the fracture impact patterns, but there was no indication that Frank Olson went through glass. Okay. No lacerations, for example, in all the places you would expect. There was one like little tiny shard of glass, but that could have equally have just come, like you land on the sidewalk of New York City, there could be glass there, right? There was also a sign of impact above his eyes, which the report claimed could only have come from a blow in the room. So all this starts to suggest it's not suicide. Gotcha. In 1995, New York District Attorney Robert Morgenthau received an envelope marked confidential, and it was a request from Eric Olson's attorney for a criminal investigation of the Frank Olson death. Now remember, because of the civil suit and the settlement, it's really only a criminal investigation that will allow them to pursue further. Sure. And they wanted to do it soon because key witnesses are getting older. They're dying, right? This is this is the moment. In April 1996, Morgenthau opens a criminal investigation into the death of Frank Olson and assigns it to his cold case unit headed by Steve Sirocco, a district attorney. Immediately, Sirocco's like, there's some weird stuff here. <laughs> the idea that someone intentionally jumped through a closed shaded window, being one of them, never saw that before. Plus, there were other weird things, even in the CIA's own release documents. Weird references, weird uh, sort of things that like refer to Olson as having been exposed. And like, what is what is that? One of the many weird things in the documents was also that immediately after Olson's death, a CIA security officer was sent to Manhattan. And this officer recorded that he had eavesdropped on a closed door conversation between Lashbrook, the, the CIA guy who was in the room with Olson, right? And Dr. Abramson the guy who's an allergist but apparently treating psychiatric stuff. Sure, right? yeah, it makes no sense. He overhears this conversation, and it's apparently a closed-door conversation that he can just sort of hear through the door. And per his report, Lashbrook and Abramson listened to a tape-recorded interview with Olson and then talked about how to portray Olson as psychotic and suicidal and riddled with the guilt complex. Huh. It's also worth noting, and this is taking us a little bit out of the timeline, but in 1997, a CIA assassination manual will come to light. Oh. And one of the one of the, the, the lines from it is this. The most efficient accident in simple assassination is a fall of 75 feet or more onto a hard surface. Jesus. It's literally it. I yeah. mean. <laughs> yeah. 
So Siraco and his partner, a man named Bibb, they decide to interview those key witnesses that are still alive. So that's William Colby, the CIA director who released the documents, Vincent Rouette, who worked with Olson, Robert Lashbrook, who was in the hotel with Olson, and Sidney Gottlieb, the infamous. Siraco mails a letter requesting an interview to William Colby. And then on April 28, 1996, he's shocked to find a news report that William Colby was mysteriously missing body was found a week later on Chesapeake Bay Island. So there goes one. Very conveniently. Yeah. What year is this now? 96. Gotcha. Sirocco and Bib interview Rouette, or want to. Oh, jeez. They decided that they did get one interview, I should say. Okay. I'm going to start that part over. Sirocco and Bib move on to Rouette. They interview him, but they decide in talking about it that his answers to their questions were unsatisfactory. So they want to go back and re-interview him. Oh, boy. But when they go to reschedule, they learned Rouette was dead of a heart attack. He died November 16th, 1996. Okay. So that leaves Lashbrook and Gottlieb. Lashbrook straight up lied when the sheriff showed up to his California town and knocked on his door with a subpoena. He said, I don't know any Robert Lashbrook. Never lived here. Nope. And then an appeals court ruled to enforce a subpoena. But the CIA and the DOJ intervened and would only let Lashbrook be questioned if, one, the CIA and the DOJ got to review and approve the questions that were going to be asked, and two, if Lashbrook were to be guaranteed immunity under New York law. Oh, did he take that? Mm Mm-hmm. They finally sit down with Lashbrook in October 98. And this comes from a book titled... A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Cold War Experiments by this guy named Alborelli. Got it. And Alborelli writes, Unfortunately, Lashbrook's testimony is considered secret and not available to anyone outside the district attorney's office. When this author, Alborelli, asked, asked Sirocco and Bibb over lunch about the testimony, I received expressionless, silent stares in reply. So you believe everything he told you? I asked. Bibb shook his head and said, Not everything, no. Eric Olson also asked Sirocco and Bibb what they thought. And Eric Olson said, Sirocco and Bibb told me that Lashbrook did not confess, that he stuck to the conventional story. I asked them which version of the conventional story, but I never got a clear answer to that. After a few months, I again tried to probe about this. I said to Bibb, well, you said that Lashbrook stuck to the conventional story. If that's so, and if you believe what he said, you would have closed the investigation down. As you have not done that, I can only conclude that you didn't believe what Lashbrook told you. To which Bibb said, we believed some of it, some of it we didn't believe, and some of it was simply absurd. So on Monday, March 8th, 1999, Steve Sirocco decides to draft a letter to talk to Gottlieb, asking him for an interview, right? And just as he sits down to, to write this letter, he gets a call from Eric Olson saying that Gottlieb died the day before. Oh, jeez. It was unexpected. And the middle of a criminal trial against him in New York. Oh, my gosh. That's insane. So throughout all of these decades, there are these continuing memos from uh, internal memos of the CIA that sort of pop up here and there. And the author of that book, Alborelli, comes across a few more from December 1953 that talk about Olson's suicide putting suicide in quotes like there's quotation marks around it Jeez. but the real revelations start to to really reveal themselves they come in 2001 in 2001 Sirocco and Bibb get Morgenthau so the the you know the DA 
to approve the request to bring the author Al Borelli to New York to assist with some aspects of the case. The author agrees to connect the DA's office with two of his sources who were former CIA, with the understanding that their confidences and identities would have to be kept secret. These sources, whom Al Borelli calls Albert and Neil, were able to flesh out and make sense of a lot of the details that had been popping up in drips and drabs since the 70s. And here's what they said happened. Frank Olson was brought to that meeting at Deep Creek Lake a few days before his death, ostensibly as part of an observation of the effects of LSD. But by 1953, the CIA has done a ton of experiments. They know what LSD does. In truth, this was simply a cover so that they could drug Olson. Now, this is because whether he had a change of heart or a guilty conscience because of the kind of projects he's involved with or because of hubris, Olson had begun talking about these experiments that took place in the summer of 1951 to people who were not supposed to know about it. And this jives with some of the reports that are in declassified documents, such as the one from Dr. Abramson, which was written about three weeks after Olson's death, in which he refers to Deep Creek Lake and the drugs as being performed especially to trap Olson. So the incident that they, that Alborelli thinks Um, although this is disputed by other historians, that Olson is talking about to people who he shouldn't be is an incident at a French town called Pont Saint-Esprit or something like that. Pont Saint-Esprit? We'll get someone French eventually to do this. Pont Saint-Esprit. What happened in Pont Saint-Esprit in 1951 was that for an entire day, the townspeople had hallucinations, psychotic breaks of all ages, all walks of life, the result of which several people died, others were injured. And at the time, it was blamed on, I'm going to say this wrong, ergot poisoning. Sure. But there hadn't been ergot poisoning, and they claimed that it was in the bread, but there hadn't been a case of this in centuries. Alborelli believes it was part of a LSD poisoning as part of a CIA experiment. And in fact, we do know that in round 51, around this time, Frank Olson and others are in France. Sure. So the meeting at Deep Creek, the administering of the LSD, all this is meant to enhance Olson's interrogation. He's brought elsewhere from the rest of the group, separated from all the other workers who were drugged. Um brought elsewhere to be interrogated and it's there that they decide you know we're going to take him to dr abramson for further evaluation in part they hoped that you know they had known each other for years maybe olson will just talk yeah apparently things were going okay in new york until olson wandered off for a while and then began begging to be allowed to flee or disappear and as a result lashbrook asked for backup in new york Abramson suggested Olson receive intensive treatment, i.e. shock therapy and chemical therapy techniques used by the CIA, and to be transferred to a facility where this could happen. So Lashbrook wants backup to make sure that everything goes safe, and they have a couple of go-tos, sort of shady contacts, that uh, that they, they call in. Their first choice had to go to his mother's funeral. Their second choice is uh, goes by the name of Jean-Pierre Lafitte. And, yes. Oui, oui. Why, and, does uh, so, why does Lafitte sound so familiar? Well, I don't know. Does remind me of Lafou. That's not no. Nice. Well, Lafitte comes in, and this is convenient because he's a CIA contact, a, a CIA, you know, guy who does stuff, <laughs> who's working undercover as a bellman 
at the Stadler oh, Hotel. Oh, gosh. Uh-huh. And so he's using a different name there. And in fact, the uh, the Pastore, the man- night manager who went to comfort Olsen and shared his perspective on things, he remembers this French guy by the name of like Martin, who was a bellman at the time, asking like, oh, what happened? What happened there? You know what happened there? Did he go through it? So Lafitte somehow also contracts another shady underworld character who's known as Spirito, but he's enlisted without permission, which is interesting. So we don't know how that that happens. Regarding the actual death of Olsen, the uh, CIA informants who are telling this tale, Albert and Neil, quote unquote, they continue to be vague about the specifics of it. But it it seems that Lashbrook decided he wanted to get Olsen to the treatment center sooner than later. Not the next day when they had a flight booked, but tonight. The, the early morning hours of the 28th. So they have a car pull up and Lafitte and Spirito are, are supposed to escort Olsen down to it. Yeah. But Olsen puts up a fight. And according to Albert and Neil, in the ensuing struggle, he was pitched through the window, through the closed window. So he was thrown. Well, when pressed further as to the intent, the, you know, the the Sirocco and his partner and Albert Early were like, was the intent? intent to murder him albert and neil said the intent initially was to remove him from the hotel without incident and take him to maryland where he would be tucked away and further assessment would be allowed so as to decide what to do with him Mm. but just as things are building right this is a lot that sirocco and bib the um the attorneys have now as a case right just as things are building things fall apart Sirocco and Bibb began to insist that Albert and Niels not only verify their identity and prove their former employment with the CIA, which they did, they also, per their boss, Morgenthau, decided they needed the CIA to verify their identities. Now, this would require Albert and Neil to actually reveal themselves, right? Yeah. And reveal that they've been leaking this. Yeah. So Alberelli says, no, that's impossible. Albert and Niels not going to agree to this. And as a result, Sirocco and Bibb concluded Alborelli's involvement in the investigation. And Alborelli is really suspicious that this sudden insistence on proof and CIA verification was simply a way to put an end to the case. And this was May of 2001. In 2002, Eric and Nils rebury their father. Alborelli pu- publishes his book some years later. In 2012, they tried to initiate another lawsuit, but that oh, was wow. struck down. And then a few years ago, there's this really compelling documentary that I highly recommend on Netflix called Wormwood, and it explores it uh, in in numerous ways. Um, it's it's kind of like the book that I read by Alberelli for this. It's it's a disjointed tale, in part because this was the most like linear version I could think to come up with just now. But it's it's this constant referencing back to old memos and old you know documents that keep surfacing about what happened um but that there we have it that's the story of frank olsen wow it's insane that it took so many years to get any sort of clarity on any of it yeah and that for so long it just looked like suicide yeah yeah and that the documents we have that refer to Olsen by name, to the incident. It, one of the documents even refers to Pont Saint-Esprit in relation to Olsen. There's like a reference of putting them together. These are just 
luck of the draw that these documents even survive because Gottlieb and others destroyed so many documents. Yeah. Wow. You know, we went into this episode, we were like, gosh, the the U.S. intelligence agencies are real awful. Yeah, they are. And How are you feeling now, Adam? Oh, like garbage. We recorded an episode before this and it made me feel so nice. <laughs> and this episode Sorry. makes me feel like garbage. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Pretty bad. Wow. And there are, there, what's interesting, too, and I, I do recommend the book. It's dense. It's 1,600 pages. But it's it, it also looks at other tangential cases. So he, Frank Olson wasn't the only person at Deep Creek to have like lasting effects in some way or another from the LSD, right? Other people have um, medical issues. There are cases of people from these projects in different hospitals in New York City who are being given treatments and dying from treatments because of these LSD projects. It's this sort of spiraling conspiracy wow well there you have it folks there you have it another conspiracy a murder a murder which we thought was, was a suicide it was not no no no, no, no. Murder. um and that's and that's and that is that you know in the next few weeks we're going to be compiling um what, what i'm calling our uh our our volume one of our our new york mystery machine research um um, um, something I haven't thought of a cool name for it, but it's gonna be basically a reading list slash watch list. A lot of the stuff that we've covered, and so all the books that we've been saying and talking about, and and film documentary. Um, I know people have been asking, well, what was that? Or I wanted to go back and you know, someone the other day literally um, texted me like, what was that book that that Christina mentioned? And I was like, I gotta go back to the episode. <laughs> so we're gonna have just uh, each each few months, every probably every like 10 episodes or so, just a list of all the resources that we used. List. Yeah, little resources of uh, a reading list slash watch list that kind of will will um, will benefit if you want to read further on the episodes. And certainly that 1600 book, such a 100 page book will be part of that list. And um, as well as all the the memoirs that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Um, if you want to to talk about all these things, you know how to do it. We're we're very reachable. You hit us up on the social True. media at NY Mystery Machine on Facebook and Instagram and at NY Mysteries on the Twitter or um, drop us five stars and a great review on um on the iTunes Apple Podcast and uh check out the Patreon. And check out the Patreon as we mentioned in the beginning. We have a really cool Patreon with a lot of cool uh cool prizes and um we're gonna be working on the the level four or five prize of the playlist mm. uh, coming up. So uh, make sure you jump in on that. Be really, it's fun. All the cool kids are doing it. I think all the cool kids are doing it. They're definitely doing it. Definitely doing it. Uh, Christina, thanks for a, I mean, it's such a downer, but thanks yeah. for a great episode. Fascinating. I never, it's we, crazy. We had said before recording, I was like, Christina, I never know any of the things you're going to talk about, which is really great. And I don't think you've known a lot of the stuff I was going to talk about. Um, and we don't, you know, how we, our format of this show is we don't, um, we don't tell each other. We just tell each other what the subject is so we know not to talk about a similar case. But um, we come into these stories fresh. So like, you know, for today, I, I knew as much as all of you. <laughs> so I was learning it too. So uh, thanks for, uh, for tuning on and we're back all new next week again, um, as, as we are in most weeks. I'm Adam Mace. I'm Christina Marinelli. Thanks for taking a ride on the New York mystery machine. Tammany Hall, but for ghosts. But for ghosts. Ooh. Oh, that's a theme song. I'll let, I'll let, the, I'll let Andy's work 
do its do its job. <laughs>